Introducing Minor Wisdom Quintet. Everybody, I, well, I, I was a huge fan of Robin Williams. Good morning, Vietnam. Uh, but hey, guys, what's going on? So this week, as the title says, I always say who is on, but I'm assuming it's because maybe you just didn't read the title. But this week, I've got Rick Garcia, and I believe a lot of people know Rick Garcia because of the Maestro program that he puts on every summer, and we talk a lot about that in our interview. And uh, this was one-on-one. This was uh, in person. I uh, went up to the Bastrop area for Texas Thespians uh, the last week of July to do some professional development up there and uh, to lead, or not to really lead it, but to support it, if you will. But I went up there and thought, why not try to get a in-person interview? And so I actually uh, peeked behind the curtain. I actually reached out to Rick to do it on Zoom, and I was just going to leave later. And then I realized, wait. He's near-ish Bastrop. He's actually not near Bastrop at all. He's uh, in San Marcos, San Marcos. And, uh, but it's closer to Bastrop than I am now by an hour. So I just went over to San Marcos, and I had never been to his place where he hosts the Maestro Camp. It's actually his bed and breakfast, pretty much, his, his uh, property. And so that was really neat. It's straight out of a movie. I mean, it, it really is. It's... Uh, you know, that dirt road leading up to the house and kind of uh, just kind of uh, what you could tell used to be a very private spot. And it's kind of growing as everything is around in and around Austin area. Uh, so it's not as private as it used to be, probably. But it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of land, the part that I saw, the house. Uh, and it's just really, uh, really nice. So this interview was done uh, inside his house uh, in one of the uh, rooms there. And the unfortunate thing, it had nothing to do with Rick Garcia, but the unfortunate thing is, this is again, one of those small things you just forget about. My SD card was not good. And uh, so I only got a little bit of the interview on an SD card, on a nice microphone. You might argue that actually what ended up happening, uh, me recording on an iPad, sounded better and uh, maybe that had to, something to do with the room or whatever it was but anyway you'll hear a shift in the uh in the in this the quality and so I will make sure to come on and just say hey now now's the time where I recognize that uh, my SD card was full and that just happened so uh you do miss a little bit of his answer to a question but I'll try to summarize that when we get to that part of the podcast. So I hope everybody's doing well. We are in the thick of planning TXETA and getting that going. I hope people are registering. <sighs> Man, it's tough. I, I will be there. Uh, I will be on the exhibit floor. Uh, we do have some exhibitors coming, some of the usuals, some of the people that you're used to seeing. But we've also had <clears throat> a number of exhibitors that are typically in attendance tell us, hey, man, it's not going to happen this year again. And they're not because they don't want to. It's just because they know that things are a little crazy right now. So with the Delta variant and such. So uh, there are a number of people not coming. If you're attending, you'll recognize who is there and who is not there. I don't need to go into who it is and who it isn't. But uh, you will see some fa- uh, some famous. <laughs> you'll see some famous people too. You'll see some familiar uh, booths at TXETA. Uh, I am teaching a workshop. I'm super excited. I actually bought some things for that workshop. Eh, that's what I said I did. I, I needed these things just to have them, but I also bought them to use in the workshop. But I'm going to be teaching a workshop on basics of the lighting board. So uh, just some basic things that I know some of you don't need at all. Uh, don't come don't attend. I don't want you there, but uh, I'm going to be teaching some of those teachers that that just kind of want to learn the basics because that's really all I know. (laughs) I'm not a very talented dude. All those teachers going back this week and all the teachers that went back previous weeks, 
I hope you're doing well. I hope you're being safe. I hope things are working out well for you and your students in the classroom and outside of the classroom. Uh, I did something I've never done before, and I actually, we moved to a new school district. Uh, so my daughter, my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter is going to a new school, and they, uh, this district doesn't really believe in either science or the pandemic. So I actually emailed the superintendent and a, a couple of other people to say, hey girl, I'm a new parent. What are your, I played dumb, what are your mitigations? And so then from email to email, back and forth, I uh, really got to know some of the higher ups in the district and um, understand that it's not a district that follows science and uh, government unless the government tells them that they don't have to follow the government. So I hope you're picking up what I'm throwing down. But anyway, uh, so that was new for me. And, uh, you know, it's it's a struggle. My school is masking up. They have announced that they're masking until August 31st. Uh, but I feel like that's going to go longer. And the students at my school, at, at the John Cooper School, are not uh, like other students. Um, I don't want to say they're smarter, but the way that their brain thinks, they're an very, very analytical about things. And like, like they're horrible at sweeping, but they're really good at like the trajectory of a rock when you throw it off a building and how fast it will hit the ground or something like that, right? Like things I don't know. I can sweep the hell out of a stage though. But these kids are convinced that things are going to shut down and that we're going to be online for a little bit. And I really hope that's not the case. I really hope people are just smarter. Uh, mask up. If you don't want to get vaccinated, fine. Don't get vaccinated. But at least wear a damn mask and, uh, you know, stay safe and don't get our kids sick because, yeah, that's just kind of selfish. So, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm going to stop preaching to the uh, theatrical choir, if you will. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Rick Garcia. Again, I'm going to come in. I don't do this very often. I'm going to come in in the middle of the interview and just kind of say, hey, this is what I was asking. And this is what kind of what he said, because uh, it's it cuts off. Please follow me on the Twitter at Mr. Blake Minor or you can friend me on Facebook. I have that done all the time. Uh, make sure you like throw a shout out to me if you're friending me on Facebook and I don't know you. Like we probably have mutual friends, so I'm gonna just trust it. But like say, hey girl, uh, I listen to your podcast just hoping to be your friend. And I'll be like, okay girl, like that's fine with me. So uh, just, um, <clears throat> you know, reach out to me on there. If you wanna help a brother out, you know, and throw some cash my way, then uh, I'm leaving my my uh, cash app and Venmo and all that stuff. Anyway, thanks, Bobby. So I hope everybody's doing well. Again, stay safe, mask up, uh, and enjoy this week's interview with Mr. Rick Garcia. I was educated in Rawls High School, which is 27 miles east of Lubbock. Okay. Uh, my dad was a cotton farmer. My grandfather was a cotton farmer and rancher, and. UIL one-act play was the only show in town. Uh, and so I looked forward to UIL and participated in UIL from junior high all the way through high school. Uh, and then was also very active in the journalism program uh, at my high school, an excellent English journalism teacher. Uh, and I turned down journalism scholarships to tech because I wanted to pursue theater uh, and also get out of town just to explore, yeah. you know, my my lifestyle, myself, and needed to get out of the high plains. And so I ended up at the University of Texas studying theater there. Went in as a performance major, and after one year, uh, needed a little more stability. So I changed to theater education, and Ruth Denny, who founded the high school for visual yeah. and performing yeah, yeah, yeah. arts, was a close friend and excellent mentor. Um, and Ruth held my hand and got me through um, some ups and downs in my young life uh, and pursued theater education. Uh, my first job was to go back to Rawls and I was going to teach theater and English. I also taught history. Uh, I was going to take over the family farm and teach. 
Um, that didn't work out. That were the early 80s, Reaganomics, and hmm. so much of the farmland was subsidized by government loans, and they wanted their money back. And so my dad lost our, our family lands. Um, and so I went to state my first year teaching and was recruited by Barbers Hill ISD, which at that point was the second wealthiest school district in yeah. the state, yeah. uh, behind Crane High School in West Texas. Uh, and it was just, they were small rural communities. And so I went to Barbers Hill and was there for four years, carried them to state as well. Um, and then began work on my master's. So I went to the University of Houston and started working in a creative writing master's program. I'm a writer. Uh, and then was recruited by Klein Oak, at the newest high school in the Klein School District. So I left the master's program, went to Klein for four years, uh, carried them to state, and then uh, turned 30. I thought, oh, is this all I'm going to do? You know, I started to feel the pains of Everybody else has their second homes. They're traveling to Europe. I'm just working my butt off, you know, <laughs> summers and falls. Because at that point, I was being recruited to direct at summer camps in the summer. And so I quit teaching for a year, returned to Austin, which I loved. Uh, and I taught at UT for a year and a half and developed a one-man show that I started to tour with. The show was Cucuy, the Mexican Boogeyman. Um, which was a collection of my autobiographical stories um, woven with um, Hispanic folk folklore, right. El Cucuy, La Lechuza, La Llorona. But basically it was an examination of my own life and how I identified and where I was, as well as theater. Um, and then I ran out of my money, so I had to find a job, and I couldn't make it as an artist and tour, so I went to work at Johnston High School in East Austin. The Liberal Arts Academy was there for 16 years. A uh, wonderful career, but it was a struggling, low-income, um, predominantly Hispanic neighborhood, and finally TEA shut Johnston down. Yeah. Um, and so I surrendered and went to the private school world, uh, St. Andrew's Episcopal was only three years old then, and their sister school, St. Stephen's, had been recruiting me for years, but I, was, I felt good about what I was doing in an East Austin neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, but when that school shut down, I went to St. Andrew's and was there for 18 years. I just resigned this past year. Uh, and it was a very rewarding job. Uh, sort of the tables turned, you know, whereas I was in a neighborhood where 95%, you know, didn't care about their education, didn't know what education could do for them, and 10% did. I was now at a private school environment where 95% were doers, go-getters, yeah. um, and 5% had to be you know, pulled in and nurtured. Um, but what I discovered there was, number one, a huge support for the arts and an education. And I was embarrassed for a while. And, uh, people would say, well, what's it like? And I was like, oh, schools are school. Teachers are teachers. Kids are kids. But I, I privately knew that money could buy a very good education. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of support, financially support from families, uh, was something that other schools just don't have. Right. Um, so um, that sort of brings me to where I am now. Um, Maybe we can talk a little bit about Kukui, the show that I developed. Yeah, it was, so um, is it still growing? That was, that was my first question because, I mean, you said that was quite a while ago. Is it, is it something you've added to? Yeah, no, unfortunately, I live in a box somewhere. And now that I've resigned, <laughs> I'm hoping that I can find the time to get back to some of my right. writing and revisit that piece as well as others. Yeah, like uh, part two or something. Yeah, you know? yeah or... Or maybe just to write it and make it available for younger performers. Right, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's, it's an interesting piece. I've, I have since, you know, that was like the early 80s, mid 80s. Yeah. And so I've seen the word kukui thrown around from other writers now. Of course, that was being developed when there were no Mesoamerican studies, there were no Latino studies sure. in my education. Um, so uh, it. I'd like to revisit it, but its its turning point was my mom had seen me perform in Houston. My dad, who supported my work and was a farmer, you know, theater wasn't a part of his culture, uh, did not 
uh, attend those performances until I went to perform at University of Texas Permian Basin in Midland, Odessa. <laughs> so that was the closest that I was going to get to home. So here come all of my cousins and family. They're going to come watch Rick perform his play. Uh, and uh, so I'm backstage. It's five minutes before curtain. And my mom comes back there and she goes, we're real proud of you, but um, I don't like the way you talk about your dad. And I don't like the way you talk about Jesus in this play. Can you change it? I was like, I can't change it. Goes, well, your dad's going to be in the audience. And so I got through it, and she was referring to some angry Catholic themes in the play, uh, some uh, history and very personal insight into some of my dad's earlier behaviors when he was young, uh, childhood memories. And yeah, we got through the performance, big party and celebration at my cousin's house afterwards, and the next day, I'm back in Rawls at my parents' house. and I'm in the back room that used to be my bedroom, and I hear my dad plug in the VCR of the show that he had bought. So he's watching me perform again. Mm. So I go into the living room, and he's crying pretty hard. And we sat there, and we cried together. And then he goes, How, why did you do this? How did you learn to do this? And for, for the first time, I articulated that it was my storytelling is modeled after his sermons at church. He's a wonderful storyteller. Right. And I always knew that the congregation was very excited when my dad was going to speak because he's an excellent storyteller. Right. And so I think through, you know, observation, I gained my, my storytelling skills through my dad. And then I'd waited, I think I was 32 then, I'd waited that long to hear my dad say, you know, you're pretty good. Yeah. You're better than anything I see on television. You know, and that's all we want as kids yeah, is yeah. the validation from our families. Uh, it changed my relationship with him, and it, it became the foundation for a curriculum that I now teach called Talk Theater, which are kids writing their own personal narratives and staging them, which can be a little delicate depending on the subjects that you know yeah. a teacher discovers. Uh, <clears throat> but it, it became my foundation for creating relationships with students, and I... And I I now use that as creating relationships with the teachers that I'm training also. Right. So that's Kukui. Maybe it'll be part two yeah. sometime. Yeah. I mean, it'd be very interesting. You know, you you have grown a fan base through your camp. So, yeah. you know, right there you you, yeah. you would have an audience, <laughs> you know. So I think that's, that's really great. So speaking of your camp, so when did Maestro start? I want to get into a little bit of the yeah. history of, of the background of it. I, I know you posted, as we record this, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, you posted about, started with what, seven people? Uh, you tried to name them. Yeah. <laughs> and some of them have confirmed that they actually were there. Uh, um, and now it's grown to, you know, almost a couple hundred, so. Right. Um, Maestro Theater actually began in 1991, okay. so that's 30 years ago. Okay. Uh, in its inception, I was still teaching at Klein Oak, and several of my close colleagues uh, had approached me about directing them in a play. Right. So we created Maestro Theater, found some donors, and we all from gathered in Austin, Texas, and performed at Austin High School, uh, where Larry Prees was then the director. Larry was in the show, uh, Layla Colmia, who is retired from Austin High School, uh, George Atkinson, who is still practicing theater, Lisa Hale, who is now retired, um, I can't think of her name right now, and she's from a middle school in San Antonio. Um, we all gathered, we each brought students from our own schools, yeah. the teachers performed, our students were our technicians. Uh, we performed to Jillian on our 37th birthday, all the proceeds that we raised uh, began a scholarship for a theater student. Okay. Uh, and we did that three summers in a row, and then it dismantled, and I moved, and. I revisited the next stages of Maestro Theater in 1991 when we bought this the historical home that we're sitting in now, Eastwood Hill, Bed and Breakfast in San Marcos, so that I could continue the development of Maestro. So we bought this house in 99, 2001, I did the first Maestro intensive directing workshop. Yeah. And I had been doing that at conferences, you know, leasing a hotel space, teachers would gather. Right. Uh, but the entrepreneur in me knows it. it would be much more lucrative if it's its own space. And I've always ha hated the sort of clinical, institutional environment of hotel ballrooms. Yeah. And 
And so I wanted a, a gathering place that was more of a retreat center than a, than a conference space. Right. Uh, so in 2001, I advertised at the UIL State Meet with Flyers, got seven participants. <laughs> we gathered here at the house, which was still not finished, unfurnished. I rented folding beds, rented folding tables, <laughs> and we met in the house. Yeah. Um, and 20 years later, I have now hosted this summer seven different sessions uh, with approximately 20 teachers per session. Okay. Um, in addition to continuing the theater workshops, Maestro Theater also offers audition training for students. We just had our board meeting last week. We have a little bit of money and we're now underwriting um, a third of the cost for each student to attend their audition training. Um, and that comes from, I, I think, the spirit of what I, what I am hoping to have, what I have hoped to have built and continue to build is to provide resources, training, affordable prices for primarily rural educators because yeah. that's where I'm from, but all educators. Um, but I'm sensitive to my rural educators because art is not as accessible to them as it right. is in urban areas. Uh, and usually in your country schools, you, know, you, you, you know, the principal has to assign somebody to direct the right. UIL one act play. Right. It's the English teacher or something. The English like teacher, that, yeah, the yeah. librarian. Yeah. I have superintendents, principals that come here for training right. because they're the one that's directing one act. Right. Uh, so uh, that's sort of its its outreach. Uh, the the those that don't have the theater training, but. Maestro really attracts masters from NYU, from right. Yale, as well as I'm the football coach going to direct the one-act play. Right. Uh, and I love the spirit and the, uh, of everyone is respected despite your UIL success or theater training. Here. Right. So auditions for kids, teacher training for teachers. I also now do what I call uh, critiquing young hearts and art. Uh, this is not UIL adjudicator certification, but for UIL one-act play adjudicators who are seeking to practice and improve their vocabulary and how to deliver effective criticism. Yeah. Um, and so we have two sessions this fall uh, for adjudicator training. We also have extensive books and resources now that uh, can help with uh, teachers developing their curriculums, uh, videos, and then the next phases uh, I'm hoping to start a summer camp, a small summer camp, uh, here on the property. And we don't have a theater nor a performance venue, but I'm looking at immersive type theater. Right. It's an old 1850s Victorian farmhouse. So what if we do August Osage County and right. we're walking from room to room? What if we do All My Sons on the front porch? Right. Um, Rhymers of Eldridge out in the woods. Right. Uh, uh, and, and I'm hoping there to create uh, a very selective small group of workshop invitees. So as me and my staff travel doing UIL clinics, I'm asking my staff to ice, to try and locate that kid that they ha think has potential but's isolated in the middle of nowhere and doesn't sure. have the resources and we'll invite them and hopefully underwrite the majority of their summer camp here. Um, the second phase which still isn't developed is to give teachers some of the luxuries that St. Andrew's Episcopal provided me, and that's education and travel abroad. Right. So I'm hoping to find kind donors that will underwrite part of teachers' uh, teachers' uh, travel costs so that we can conduct maestro training in Athens and right. standing in yeah. those ruins. Um, so that's some of the workshop, what it is, and hopefully where it's headed. So. Uh, well, first of all, I've, uh, this is a very basic, simple question, but why the name Maestro? What, what did that, you know, <laughs> people hear that name, they think music. Yeah. You know, the, so how did that name come about? Well, and I mean, I'm bilingual, raised, you know, bilingual uh, Latino. Maestro also means teacher in its okay. music term, conductor, <laughs> the maestro. Okay. <laughs> but in Spanish, teacher, maestro. Yeah. And so... Um, just to, you know, to, to play on my career and okay. my calling and my the teacher. 
I went to Hebrew school all my life, so <laughs> that's, that's why I didn't. I wasn't familiar. So some people are like, clearly it's yeah, yeah. and it's Latin roots teacher. It's it's musical application conductor. All right, yeah. okay. Well, forgive me. No. Uh, so when, have you always known you wanted to be an educator? Because I'm sitting here listening to you talk about we offer this, we offer that. It's all immersive education. Uh, have you kind of always known you kind of had this need to... Uh, Blake, I read somewhere that first college, first generation college educators, 85% pursue education. Mm. I remember reading that somewhere. Okay. Uh, so that's true for me. I was the first in my family to get a college degree. Uh, and I think part of that may just be it is the vehicle that, that saved us from a different economic class, from sure. a different... Uh, uh, working class um, and so that's just statistically 85% of first college educated pursue education to start off with yeah. that's one the other is I think people who are happy in their careers are very in touch with what religion calls your calling what people call what your passion you know give it whatever name you want I am I am and always have been a very nurturing individual I'm number four of eight, so I fell in the middle. I was always too young to do this, too old to do that. Uh, <laughs> right. But I also discovered that I was sort of the healer between both age groups. Like a, like a moderator type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And so those are teaching skills. Yeah. Um, and so it was a nice fit. But once again, it was my teachers were my first models of professionals. Yeah. So I credit a lot of my vision and my dream to those teachers that gave me that foundation. Right. And I'm very grateful to my first grade teacher, in particular, Linda Hicks. Um, my fifth grade teacher, Patricia Copeland. Uh, she's now divorced. I can't think of her current name right now. Very influential in my young right. life. Um, Mike Fisher and his wife uh, in middle school and high school just inspired me. Drew Burt, who I still have a, a relationship with, she was my journalism English teacher. I visit her regularly. We talk regularly. Right. Uh, she taught me how to write. But, um, still a dear friend of mine. And then Teresa Bounds, who I've lost contact with, and she was my high school um, theater director. I don't know where Teresa is now. But I, I, I point to them as the model of what I could become. Yeah. yeah. So what so what came I and I know I'm kinda of going all over the yeah, map here. Go but for it. What came first, the writing or the performing? Uh, it was the writing. Good okay. question. Yeah. Uh, and even before the writing, designing and art. Okay. I remember I drive my mother crazy. She'd leave to we lived out in the farm in the country, so she'd be gone all day Saturday doing laundry and buying groceries. She'd come back. The entire house had been remodeled, redecorated. Uh, I used to bring in sure. wood and mud and create sculptures on my yeah. nightstands. Yeah. Just, you know, I was always creating something. Um, I remember once I went out to the junkyard, bought all these busted pieces of colored glass and created a glass mobile and hung it over my bed. She immediately made me take it down. Yeah. yeah. So... There was always some artistry going on, sure. um, but I was always a writer, and I remember my journals, and I still have them somewhere in a box here on the property, but I yeah. think my earliest journal was probably sixth grade, um, okay. and so a lot of those journals were uh, my references to create Kukui. I went back and looked at a lot of okay. those childhood writings. So were these observations, or were these uh, your feelings, or both, or you know what, what were your journal? You know, because you think of the stereotypical you know, watching a sitcom in the 90s of journals, you know, I really love this boy and I hope he likes me. Right. No, mine were more probably philosophical, theological. We were immersed okay. in the Catholic Church, number yeah. one. So a lot of it was probably liturgical, liturgically sure. based. Yeah. Uh, we were in church all the time, so that was the literature, the poetry, the symbolism that I grew up with. Yeah. So making analysis to the Catholic faith and my own life and you know, those prophets, those saints, journeys, and comparing sure. them to my own feelings and thoughts. But also, as I was dealing, you know, with all sorts of aspects of my life, am I really Latino, am I not, you know, I, I'm bilingual, English is my first language, not my throat right. first, and then dealing with sexuality issues, economic right. issues, rural issues. Right. Uh, I didn't fit in in this family, I'm not a farmer, I'm not a rancher. <laughs> right. And so, self-observation, mostly. Right. 
Okay, and then you, you mentioned that you were four of eight, so your seven siblings, did they go into the family business, or did they, are they all kind of dispersed? No, we're, we're all dis dispersed. The, yeah. the irony is I was the least, least likely to become a farmer rancher, and I now, at least in name, own all the family land, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> which means I pay for the taxes of my brother and right. sisters and enjoy a free park. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. They help out. They, yeah, they help yeah. out in labor and work. Um, uh, my sister is a partner here in the bed and breakfast right. business, um, retired nurse. My brother Frank is an engineer in San Antonio, mechanical engineer. Okay. My brother Roy is retired military and helps out on the ranch a lot now. Uh, then it's me. My brother Raymond works for oil companies in West Texas, but also is very helpful on the ranch. Right. My younger brother Abel is retired. Uh, lives in Lubbock, also helps out with mom and dad's caretaking. Right. My sister Suzanne is self-employed and runs her own uh, landman business, which is an oil business. Sure. Uh, and then my youngest sister, Diane, retired from education, um, is um, also in a, a, a self-employed in a business that she Are they all still Texans? All still Texans. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah, we have nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews that have left the state. Right, sure. It sounds like you deep roots, <laughs> deep deep roots. Indeed. And your and your parents were first gen, like they came from Mexico. My dad is second generation, second actually generation. third. My okay. grandfather may have been born in. No, as a young boy, he came into Texas, the United so States. Early on, yeah, yeah. yeah. And my mom. Um, was second generation also, yeah. Do you go see family? Do you go to Mexico? Um, we don't have those connections, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, okay. No. Okay. No, we don't. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's, uh, my family's rooted in Germany. Uh, I'm a second generation German Jew, uh, but I've never been, you know, it's like, and I know, and I know I've got family there, uh, but it's always one of those things that, you know, Time to I, go, Blake. Uh, time, it's time, <laughs> it, 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 it didn't get easier when I had kids. It's like, well, do I take the kids or do we, you know, <laughs> do we? Yeah, leave, no, leave them with the grandparents. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, go go have some fun and, and look, look at the roots. Yeah. Uh, so this particular property, was this, um, is this something you sought out when you, like, when you were building and the, the maestro thing and I want to get a little deeper into that uh, in a second but did you know you you wanted kind of the bed and breakfast type of thing did you think uh, maybe we find a, a theatrical space to do this in or did this just kind of accidentally come about and um, no, I'm too strategic and too much okay. of a visionary and too so, much and of that, an entrepreneur that's going to roll into the next thing that I'll yeah ask, no it was all part of a master plan okay we, uh, I looked and looked for years to find just the right property, and Austin was exploding. And my yeah. ex-partner, business partner, and I looked for years under yeah. uh, our teacher salary. We just couldn't afford, right. so we had to move further out. When I found this property, my sister and brother-in-law had relocated from Lubbock. They were looking uh, for property, and so the four of us went in on 20 acres and two houses. Right. Okay. Uh, but this house was worth zero in an appraisal. Right. It was a mess. Right. My dad thought I was crazy. Yeah. Of course, like any theater person, we see what isn't there. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so through a lot of love and a lot of money, rebuilt a house that all I know is older than 1850 because right. the deed shows that the Eastwoods bought this house in 1850. Okay. Uh, so we are sitting in part of the 1850 section. If you'll see the, the wood goes wood, this yeah, direction yeah. and that goes the other direction. Yeah, right. And so that was the 1900s edition. Okay. Above it was the original porch of the back house. Okay. So this direction, 1850, this way, 1900. Okay. I've also preserved their history. So those are all the Eastwoods behind you. Okay. The large artwork piece next to you are, these are all Rick Garcia's creation. That's my tribute to St. Mark because the Spaniards landed here on the Feast of St. Mark. That's my trade route to the Tonkawa Native American tribe who the Spaniards eradicated. And this is my tribute to the Purple Girl, which is a little spirit that my great niece still sees in the house. So there's a little Purple Girl. Wow. <laughs> so 
So, and then, you know, and this isn't where I was going, but I'm looking at the furniture, and I'm noticing, you know, as a theater person, you, you just, you accumulate furniture, you know, I've been, this will be my 12th year of teaching, I can't tell you how many couches I've accumulated and things like that. Right. Is that kind of the same way that you, <laughs> you know, in a way, because, you know, I don't mean to insult no, no, your... Not only but, have I accumulated, yeah. uh, this house had 27 leaks in the freeze back in February. Okay. So a lot of what you're seeing is renovations and redone in the last two months. Okay. And so I have actually weeded out a lot of the other couches and chairs that were in these <laughs> okay. rooms. They're in storage containers out okay. in the pasture. So, yes. Props, lots of yeah. I mean, props. It's, it's. I mean, everything is yeah. just. I'm seeing shows and in, in a lot of the stuff. Hey. Since looking at the L.C. Smith typewriter, and just yeah, just. My ex students come in and they're like, "Oh, that was in blah 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 show. Oh, that was in blah blah." So as yeah. theater directors, yeah. we buy furniture that we can use and right. share in production. So this is the part where it got cut off, and I asked Rick to kind of get into and dive into. You know, what if a teacher wants to explore going into business and either doing some side hustle or, you know, even doing something that will eventually grow into a career outside of education. And I actually asked this of Mark Seraph when we did our thespian, uh, Friday night thespian professional development when we were in Bastrop. And Mark Seraph had a, a similar uh, answer to Rick Garcia, but Rick starts to get into you know, uh, knowing exactly what you want to do, and then talks about taking care of yourself. And that's kind of where we pick up on it. So uh, again, I asked him just to kind of talk about starting a business, because that's kind of what he did with the maestro thing. He, he branched off and kind of started doing his own thing with maestro and uh, want to make sure that uh, if anybody has that desire that they jump into it, but they're also smart about doing it. So that's uh, this is where we pick up with uh, Rick Garcia now being recorded on the iPad. Again, some of you might be like, this is better quality. Well, if it is, then I'll just keep using my iPad and I'll sell off all this expensive equipment that I bought. Enjoy. But I don't, I don't advocate making a jump and taking a big risk unless you're ready. Are you healthy? Right. Are you taking care of yourself? Are you emotionally sound? And I think that's much more important than are you financially capable and do you have a financial safety net? Right. I think someone's emotional stability and passion is much more important than the, than the safety net of money. That's my first advice. Um, and I think there has to be a plan. Unfortunately, with theater directors, we are known for our lackadaisical, unresponsible, unorganized spirits. Right. I remember a principal when I was leaving a job saying, please don't leave. You don't know how scary it is to interview drama teachers. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And I've never forgotten that. So part of my training is we do it to ourselves. You gotta get organized. Yeah. You get your you get your lesson plans in, you get your grades in on time, you budget, you stick to budget. But unfortunately, it's usually the fine arts educators that business offices are hunting down. Right. That your you know, grade person is, where are your grades? Uh, you gotta get organized. Um, and there has to be a vision and a plan. Right. I, I, I have a <laughs> I had a 20-year vision plan. Now, it doesn't s stick to it, because there's right. always you know, segues and obstacles and surprises, but there's a plan, just like our units are in education. This is what we're gonna teach semester one, so we teach semester two. I mean, it's the same, the same tools. And within that plan, is it really something that you are passionate about and that is good? Mm -hmm. If it's strictly for economic gain, the values are different, especially for artists and humanitarians. I don't. If I'm not a businessman, yeah, I, I'm. I'm an artist. Uh, I'm a nurturer. I'm a human being, and so my business isn't so much about making a financial profit as it is making Rick happy. Yeah, as it is living a satisfying <laughs> life. Uh, yeah, um, and then discovering the right options. A, a very, very dear family who ten years ago advised me 
to begin a 501c3 nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Rick, you know, so many people, and the spirit is good. You will <laughs> find people to help you finance this. Yeah. And in my arrogance, I'm not going to be a charity. I can do this on my own. I'm not going to be known as, you know, the charity. Right. Well, I went through investors, found some investors, but all they want to do was to tear down this house and build more apartments right. or housing. And I was like, that's that's not the that's not my plan. I don't yeah. want investors to do that. I want to, that'll, that'll make you money, and you could do that. No, I want to preserve the history of this home, right. etc. I want the grounds to be maintained as green space, as a safe refuge for all artists, visual artists, right. dancers, musicians. Uh, they were they saw it as Real estate with a lot of potential, right. financial <clears throat> potential. I see it as real estate with dreams for artists. Well, that didn't work out. So then I spent two years on an extensive SBA loan. I thought, surely I will be eligible for a minority tax-paying you know, <laughs> loan. A yeah. year and a half later, I got the phone call, sorry, Rick, it's not going to fly. Right. And I became very cynical at my government at that point. Yeah. Uh, and so I called my dear friends back. And I said, how do I do this 501c3 thing you talked about? Yeah. And so in 2019, we received our 501c3 status. We were going to start a seed fund drive last February. COVID hit, postponed that. Yeah. Uh, we are planning our seed fund drive in October or November of this fall, uh, at which point we will see um, how much money we can raise and we will establish our first Maestro Arts Project spending budget after the seed fund drive. Right. My goal is $250,000. Um, I think that's a realistic goal to, to meet with yeah. as many connections as we have. Um, and then I will ask those donors if they can politely uh, pledge to make that same uh, contribution year two. Right. That gets us to half a million. After half a million of seed fund money, I will approach corporations, foundations, endowments, and grants to see if they can match our half million. Right. That gets us to a million, and then we operate off interests. Right. That's business. Yeah. That's, That's planning. Yeah. That's not, oh, I'm going to need this much to do a show. Right. I need this much to establish the future. Right. So did you, and this might get into the weeds a little bit, did you, were you planning on retiring? Or were you, did you retire because this, you wanted to grow? No. Uh, yeah, it might get into the weeds a little bit. <laughs> okay. um, and, you, and you don't have to get too personal, but yeah, I, you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. I, I tell it like it is. Um, it was very difficult to leave the school I was the happiest at ever. Yeah. yeah. It was such a luxurious gig that I was really I felt guilty telling other teachers how uh, well we had it. Yeah. Okay. We can get into that in a minute. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. But I also knew that within this community, people are people and people have big hearts. Yeah. But I'm now in a community where my students will be the next business owners, the next presidents, the next senators. And if they can get a feel for this kind of service, desire to serve, then I think they will help the people that I am trying to help. Yeah. And it's just transferring those that, that empathy into a clientele. And so I really saw that it wasn't abandoning East Austin. It was finding West Ion's clients who have the ability to help East Austin. Mm -hmm. okay. I, this year, struggled through COVID. It was a horrible year to try and to be an artist and an right. educator. It, it was, it, I often think maybe we just should have taken the year off and not <laughs> even tried. It yeah. was disastrous. Yeah. I worked my butt off to try and maintain as much of normalcy as possible. We did not have a hiccup in any of our playbill. They all happened outdoor, right. masked, distanced, but very creative because we have the means. On a campus that has 80 acres, we can distance. Right, right. And so I created some very unique and clever art that was safe with help of assistance. I didn't do it on my right. own. And a, and a, a great following with alumni. 
but we were also with a new administration. And with new administration that's non-Texan, non-Austin, and whose focuses are in other elements of education, such as athletics, which right. we always battle with, right. I for the first time felt unappreciated and unrespected, and I've been there 18 years, right. and that's all we all want. I just want to be valued for my work, because I'm underpaid. Right. <laughs> I just want to know that what we are doing is good and valued, and right. for the first time, I didn't feel that. And I could go back, like I've done many, many years, and educate that naive, young administrator. I could, but I was tired. Right. And number two, I thought I was at a better school. Right. I thought I was at a school that didn't need that kind of educating, that someone would surely say, we don't do things like that here. Right. And no one did. And so some of that, like in many schools, some of that administration has already been released from contracts. And I just didn't have the energy to continue. Right. And it just seemed the time to put my money where my mouth is. Right. I was unhappy. I value being happy. I think if I had stayed there, it would be theatrically and educationally successful, financially secure, but I'd have been miserable. Right. Right. And so, time to put my money where my mouth yeah. is. I don't yeah. know how I'm going to pay the mortgage next month, yeah. but here I am. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I hear that. Uh, yeah, and we can we can talk in a little bit off the record about the same. I, I have that same feeling about. I don't know if it's guilt about uh, talking to other educators about listen to the to the job I've got, and then. Uh, but we we can talk later about that. But yeah, but. Uh, that's interesting. So now I want to completely change the subject. I have found over the couple, almost couple hundred interviews that I've done now, one of my favorite questions to ask, and it's not unique by any means. I don't want you to think that I'm like this amazing uh, uh, orator, but uh, people want to know about people's guilty pleasures. <laughs> and so... Uh, I, what is a somewhat non-theatrical guilty pleasure that Rick Garcia has? Uh, uh, you know, the, whether it be you, you watch The Bachelor or no. <laughs> you know something crazy like that. Um, I used to watch Days of Our Lives. You remember, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't own a television. I don't yeah. listen to the radio. I really live in my head. So okay. as I drive. People are like, you might try podcasts. I'm like, I run my own podcast in my head. Uh, I'm writing the next script in my head. Right, right. So there are no televisions in the house. Right. They're distractions to me. Right. So if, if I need that kind of outside world connection, I'll, I'll call a kid and I go, how do I do that in my laptop? Right. I'll have to explain how to access something. But I guess I have two. The first is... I mean, I just worked my butt off for seven straight weeks, right. nonstop, right. nonstop, and so I'm exhausted. But I have worked in three weeks of nothingness. Yeah. Two of those weeks are dedicated to my mom and my dad, which gives me so much pleasure just right. to be with them and do things with them. The other is I will veg somewhere and I will watch ancient astronauts UFO <laughs> documentaries. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Which I don't know why, but I'm a sucker for interesting for UFO and ancient uh, ruins, ancient astronaut yeah. theories. Right. <laughs> so then out here, oh, you had two. I had two. Yeah, sorry, and, go. And the other is I love to throw a good party. Okay. And so I will gather with a good group of friends. We'll laugh. We'll eat too much. We'll drink way too much, yeah. and laugh ourselves to sleep. One what night. is what is the food and drink typically that that is at, in attendance as well? Well, it depends on who the friends are. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> uh, it's always nachos of some sort. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I make a mean jalapeno dirty martini. Okay. Good to know. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. And it, uh, what I was going to, I kind of cut you off, but out, cool. he, out here you're, you're uh, and I'm somewhat envious of this, you know, the further from a city you get, the more stars you see. As a UFO kind of person, do you ever just go out and look up and try to see if there's something that doesn't belong? <laughs> Often. Okay. Um, 
here, as rural as it feels, we still get a lot of the light pollution. Okay. Um, and, From Austin. Yeah, and there are also the Air Force bases in San Antonio, which yeah. there's lots of air travel yeah, yeah, with yeah. their jets. Um, and then the Austin airport also circles through here. Right. And so, um, I mean, we, you don't have to go far to see stars out here, but not really on this property. Right, okay. Um, when I look at the property here, I'm looking at, okay, that will be the amphitheater, this will right. be the retreat center, right. this will be another writer's cabin, that's what I've right. got here. My family ranch, which is in Spur, is in the middle of nowhere. Okay. And so I will spend some time at the ranch soon. Uh, we have RV trailers on the property, but I never stay in the RV trailer. Right. I carry a single mattress, I throw it in the bed of my pickup truck, and I sleep outdoors gazing wow. up at the stars. Wow. So, massive stars in the high plains. Yeah, um, and so yeah, I do. I, I go to sleep staring at the sky. Right. My dream is to one day get to Machu Picchu. It's always called me in Peru, so I can't wait to see the stars yeah. in Peru. And Peru is also very sacred and ancient with right. the uh, establishment of those ruins uh, by the Inca. Right. I enjoy Olmec and Maya ruins too, as I traveled into central Mexico. Once again, because Mesoamerica studies were not a part of the education when right. I was, so I kind of resent that I, I didn't even know that was an option. Right. And so now I like traveling into Central America. And that's another thing. In addition to staring at the stars and their architecture and uh, studying their astrological maps, um, those myths have yet to be staged and deciphered, tra right. translated. So I'm eager, now that I have time, to look into some of the Maya or Olmec myths um, and see if I can't use that as a vehicle for some of my writings. Is is there a good place, whether it be a movie or a play, that does justice to some of those myths or does a good service for those? I'm sure there are some. Like, yeah. like Coco, not to cut you off, you yeah, know, no. people were very, uh, it's like Coco was cute and fun, but it wasn't necessarily authentic, you know, that right. kind of thing. Is there? Is there... It's, it's a baby step, and I yeah. appreciate anything that starts to pay tribute to, right. you know, uh, underrepresented cultures or groups uh, or topics, um, but that's Hollywood. That's yeah, Hollywood yeah, trying exactly. to make a buck off of what's marketable. Right. You know, even in my own head, I'm like, hmm, i got to write the musical that will exploit <laughs> ballet folklorico. That hasn't been done yet. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, I, I don't think so. I think yeah. they're all just a, still a little shallow. Yeah. There are some, you know, Royal Hunt of the Sun, but I think, again, it's just a vehicle for the story. Right. Is that part of your long-term plan, to, to, to tell some of these stories? Uh, if I can weave the folklore or that symbolism or make an analogy to that to my personal voyage, right. okay. uh, I can all, I, I'm going to feel better writing my journeys, right. my yeah. family stories, and then maybe associate them to a bigger, deeper culture. Right. It's easier to write from the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So um, I want to wrap up. I've been here for an hour now. <laughs> but uh, I love talking. <laughs> no, I know. But, uh, I've got to go meet Mandy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so hi, Mandy. Uh, yeah, but I, uh, I, you know, um, you, you have this camp. You have these workshops. You have, you've built this program, and I don't want to keep harping on it, but. No. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated by it a little bit, and I know I need to, I need to attend, but at some point. But uh, coming out of this, what is uh, what is something that has completely caught you off guard, surprised you in a positive way uh, from this experience, from uh, now the 30 years, you know, and I know it hasn't been this way for 30 years, but from the 30 years of kind of creating this. Uh, for lack of better words, monster of a, of a success. What is something that's kind of caught you off guard? Uh, I'm going to do two reactions. The okay. first and I is, won't cut you off after the first one. I am still <laughs> amazingly surprised and disappointed that schools do not pay for teachers continuing professional development services such gotcha. as this. Yeah. I would say 40% of the teachers that attend are paying out of their own pocket, right. which is insulting. It makes me feel bad to take their money, right. and shame on school districts that spend so much money on other programs, right. but will not finance this particular um, curriculum uh, or subject in their curriculums. Right. 
That's my first. I am amazed at how many teachers have to pay out of their own pocket. Right. Um, the second is the spirit that I have tried to create here is a collaborative one of creating art, gathering artists who speak the same language, artists who have the same passion, because a lot of my clients are the only artists in their community. Right. They don't have anyone to talk to. No one understands what they're visualizing. And so to gather this group of people and our and our purpose is to share ideas and spark imagination and give individuals confidence that they know more than they think they know or to trust their heart. I call it often a UIL, intensive directing workshop, because school districts have the separate budgets for UIL. Right. They'll finance it if it's for a trophy. Right, right. And so although we align it to a UL one act play format, that is strictly strategic marketing for budgets, to right. access budgets for teacher training. What I'm really teaching is directing. Right. And so my answer is, how many teachers are still in an uncollaborative frame of mind for UIL? It blows me away that we still have teachers and contest managers who think their job is to disqualify yeah. a company. Yeah. And that's not what we teach here. What we teach here is we are teaching kids. Why would anyone want to destroy a kid's heart right. or opportunity to feel successful? Uh, so those are two. I can't believe schools don't pay for it. Yeah. I can't believe we still have directors that play mean. Right. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, that's something. I, I remember having a, a student years and years ago that somebody, a, a piece of paper from a show went into the, the orchestra pit of the host school, and my my student immediately turned to me and said, "Hey, get, that can get them disqualified, right?" And I said, "I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, why are we? You know, and, and it's uh, but it goes. It harkens back to the the sport, the sporting uh, background. You know, right. kids are it's it's competition. It's not festival. Right. Um, and uh, uh, it you know, I, I I do as a contest manager, I do feel that." That mindset is is changing ra rather quickly, and uh, if so. you look at you know the past ten years or so, uh, um, it does seem as though it's changing. So I hope so. Uh, I'm going to get you out of here on this, and this might be a difficult one for you to answer uh, uh, because not because well you'll hear it in a second. I, you've had a long history of of being an educator. If you can choose one moment as an educator that was uh, a heartwarming, uh, cathartic sort of moment for you that whether it was related to a student's success or a, a show's success or a group of students, um, is, there, is there kind of one thing you can latch on to that was one of the more heartwarming, fulfilling moments that you had as an educator, one act play or not? Uh, any moment. There are lots. Okay. I mean, a lots, but I immediately was reminded of a summer academic catch-up program at Johnston High School in East Austin. Okay. A very difficult school to teach at. Our new principal, who only stayed there for two or three years, because he was on the administrative climb, and right. again, like somebody, they come in and they throw in a program and then abandon a yeah. school. Yeah. Um, he had developed a pro program and found funding for Project Pass. So Project Pass was designed to help freshmen who had not made the cut into their sophomore year. They're going to repeat their freshman year. Right. So there was money to bring them in for a six-week summer camp, get them caught up, intensive one-on-one -on -one education, and I was brought in to do their fine arts talk theater program, which is write your own personal narratives and right. stage it. So I had two different groups of about 15 kids each, the hardest group of kids I've ever had to work with. You know, I was lucky if I got a paragraph of a novel, of a right. narrative, and they had to write a dramatic and a comedic but my point with the dramatic is you you're still alive you've survived so this may be drama for you but you've conquered it you are your own hero 
So we put them together, stage it the way I always stage it. Um, I never let the kids go off stage because I've discovered that they'll just get into trouble backstage. So yeah. in this format, they're all on stage and they become audience or participants or scenery yeah. for each other's piece. So we're going to perform at the end of the camp, group A for group B, group B for group A. So A is backstage, it is chaotic. They are nervous, scared, they've never done anything like this. Right. And so I'm trying to get them all into a huddle or a circle or let's, you know, a good show. Yeah. Nothing. They are freaking out. So I remember just finally yelling, okay, when the music starts, <laughs> you know where to go. <laughs> so I go outside, introduce the piece, music starts, they all come out into their choreographed positions, start their individual stories. One little girl gets up and just freezes. Yeah. I'd never seen someone just so scared she couldn't talk. One of her colleagues, another girl, got up, put her arm around her, and said, you can do this, remember? It's the story about your baby. Tell them about your baby. And the other girl starts the monologue, and they said it together. Probably the worst piece of theater I've ever staged, <laughs> but the most moving yeah. and the most memorable. Yeah. Just because of the collaboration, the artistry, the teamwork, and the success that those kids felt. And it wasn't just doing a play, it was a play about them and their stories. Yeah. It's beautiful. Minor wisdom.